Hey, welcome back to Written Spoken. My name is Dave Rosillo. I'm the creator and the host of this podcast. And season two of Written Spoken is all about talking to different voices and, and giving different voices, backgrounds, perspectives, and areas of expertise a stage on which to shine. Today's podcast episode features the voice of Farnoosh Brock. Farnoosh is an author, she's a speaker, she's a consultant. She does a lot of work in leadership, coaching, executive development, and her background is a very high-level, high-achieving, rising star and leader at a Fortune 100 company, certainly set the pace for that. I've known Farnoosh for a number of years. She's an absolute delight, a wonderful voice, and she has a really positive message about how to develop what she calls a serving mindset, redefining and refining your outlook as a way of helping to serve uh, through your business. If you are not a business person, this conversation will still be extremely relevant. You might just instead swap out the word business for life or life design or how you show up or purpose and meaning that you may be seeking in your life. I think we all are on some level. I really enjoyed this conversation with Farnoosh. We're talking about her book. And if you have ever, in particular, had that feeling where you start to feel resistant, frustrated, or like you hate something, like a practice or a hobby or a passion, something that you thought you loved, thought you wanted to try, thought that was a part of your identity or your calling, and you started to develop a resentment or a disdain for it, this is an episode to listen to. I know a lot of writers, creatives, aspiring authors out there, the nearly 300 with whom I've worked personally as a, as a writing coach and a life coach, know what I'm talking about. Where at some point in your journey, in your creative journey, your art, your calling, your passion starts to feel like it is the object of your frustration. And you almost transpose that struggle onto your art form, but it's a struggle that you're feeling inside. This conversation with Farnoosh, I think, will help you understand where that struggle comes from because she felt it and we're going to be talking about it. Uh, I know I've felt it too. So stay tuned. I'm going to get out of the way now and let Farnoosh read from her book. Farnoosh, take it away. Today, I coach amazing individuals and consult with businesses on how to elevate their levels of revenue, impact, and joy without compromising on their values, health, or lifestyle. Back in 2008, however, I was an unhappy, quote-unquote, successful employee at Cisco, the Fortune 100 tech giant, and constantly looking for ways to fill my boredom. New challenges, new projects, new ideas, anything to stretch my mind. I'd had a great career with plenty of success, travel, income, or freedom, but I was hungry for something else. I wasn't sure what exactly. Thankfully, I stumbled into blogging and podcasting, a fun hobby that offered a creative channel to explore new avenues of possibility. Then, after a life-changing blog world conference in 2010 in Las Vegas that my husband Andy practically forced me to attend, I turned my hobby into a side hustle. At the time, I could not have imagined leaving my six-figure cushy job for the sake of an idea. And yet, that was exactly what happened six months after the conference. I resigned from the tech giant and became self-employed in April of 2011. 18 months later, my husband quit his six-figure job at the same company to join our adventure. We've never once looked back. 
I did not know this at the time, but what made this possible for me was a shift in my mindset that happened in that conference. This shift happened during one of the keynote speeches, in which I wondered to myself, if that guy on stage can quit his job and do this full time, why can't I? It was the craziest notion, but I decided to hear myself out. The corporate journey had long since run its course, and the scales had tipped without my realizing it. My comfort with the familiar was less important than my discomfort with uncertainty, and uncertainty was staring me in the face. When you have a job, you often have a roadmap from management that guides you on your path to the desired results. You may or may not like it, but you're clear about what you need to do. When you go out on your own, there is no such roadmap, and the path can feel uncertain without one. The only certainty I had at the time I resigned was that I would never work for someone else. The rest I had to figure out. My husband Andy and I both come from electrical engineering backgrounds. We met and studied at Clemson University. After college, I moved on to a startup briefly before joining Cisco, while Andy spent five years at IBM before he came over to Cisco. Even though we had never owned our own businesses, I was fortunate to learn a variety of skills in my multiple functional roles at corporate, as well as from my many mentors and coaches. While Andy remained highly technical in his work, with our strong analytical and logical backgrounds combined with my heavy focus on executive communications, corporate advancement. Uh, public speaking, leadership, and project management, we were able to establish a strong business foundation and close any gaps by developing new skills. No problem. I learned how to become a coach, a speaker, and a writer, as well as how to create a personal brand with blogs, podcasts, books, and online programs and products. Andy learned how to set up business processes and systems, how to run our websites, and how to book complex international travels while also doing our accounting, client scheduling, and invoicing. We felt pretty good about our division of labor, but one thing remained elusive. No matter how much I taught myself about sales, whether it was selling my coaching packages or pricing my products and workshops, or writing sales copy on my websites, I was not creating a consistent stream of clients or product sales. I would have some success and then a ton of rejections or a dead zone. And the clients I did, I would have stay for a while and then leave, stating. "Quote unquote price or quote unquote tight budget as a reason, I would get a lot of "I'd love to hire you, but" or "Your packages are totally worth it, but." I felt stuck, confused, inadequate, and frustrated, to say the least. At the beginning of my coaching practice, nobody was willing to pay my prices, so I thought naturally I was too expensive and needed to reduce my fees. Since I couldn't imagine charging any less, I started to resent the idea of coaching altogether. I did not know the biggest paradox that I would learn much later. It is easier, far easier, to sell 
high-priced service packages than to sell low-priced hourly service rates. It sounds impossible, but it's true. When you do this, you get high-quality clients, you grow your own experience and confidence, and you feel fulfilled. But at the time, I did not know what my real problem was. I was tracing symptoms back to a problem that did not exist, charging too much and therefore coming up with a quick, quote-unquote, logical solution of charging less. But that was impractical. Charging any less would have required me booking hundreds of clients per year in order to meet my revenue goals, a solution that was neither scalable nor palatable. This race to the bottom happens when you price your products and services for less and less in order to beat your competition and make your business more attractive. It is by far the least empowering strategy for a budding business owner, and I fell for it. I started pricing my packages for less and less and putting together tinier prices in order to sell them in volume. I couldn't figure out why the cheaper packages were even harder to sell. I joined mastermind groups, read every book on the shelf about small business growth, bought programs and products to help me, learned every marketing strategy to figure it out. Some of this information was somewhat useful, but none of it solved the issue. More information, you see, was hardly my problem. Then something very interesting happened. So I belonged to a mastermind group at the time. A mastermind group, as you know, is where a small group of three to five highly motivated people who share similar goals agree to meet on a regular basis to brainstorm new ideas. And one of my mastermind partners, Jen Gresham, former military scientist and moonshot coach, went to a conference where she gained an incredible insight. At the roundtable, she was asked to share her top business struggle, and as she told them how hard it was to sell her coaching services, their response was, you are charging too little, Jen. And her response was, excuse me, I just said I'm not able to sell at these prices. How could I be charging too little? And that's when the light bulb went off for her. It is easier to sell bigger packages. It is easier to sell a $10,000 package than a $1,200 one. It is easier to sign a $40,000 contract than a $4,000 one. We didn't know it at the time, but this simple mindset shift would skyrocket both our coaching businesses in the coming years. I know what you're thinking. It makes no sense. You don't believe me. You're right that it makes no sense in a quick, logical, black and white analysis. Yet, we found to our shock and delight that it works. This was the first notion that reoriented our compass toward the core of the problem. We were indeed charging too little for the value we were giving. We were not lacking more information to solve our business struggles. We were, in fact, dealing with information overload. We were lacking the right mindset. You just heard the voice of Farnoosh Brock, today's guest author on Written Spoken. Farnoosh went from electrical engineer and rising leader at a Fortune 100 company to a coach, speaker, author, and trainer in 2011 when she started her coaching and consulting company. 
She believes that changing our conversations from selling to serving can be a competitive advantage in business, career, and life. She's the author of The Serving Mindset, Stop Selling and Grow Your Business. In addition, she's the creator of several leadership and advancement courses. Learn more at farnoosbrock.com. Farnoosh, welcome to Written Spoken, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, for the kind, uh, <clears throat> thank you for the kind introduction, Dave, and for having me on your wonderful show. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have you on. So Farnish, to jump right in, in your excerpt, you tell us about how you transitioned from having a career as, I think you called it, uh, an unhappy, successful person or a successful, unhappy person in your yes. career and transitioned into working for yourself and that you kind of were walking through um, you know, starting a blog, see, uh, developing a side hustle, mm-hmm. and that be- becoming a full-time business for you. But you were really struggling because you say you had the wrong mindset. So my first question for you is, what is the quote-unquote wrong mindset when it comes to anyone selling what they have to offer for money? Like, what what is the mental block or the, the wrong story that they're telling themselves when it comes to... Um, you know, struggling against what they're what to selling what they have to offer. Yeah, yeah, and and I will qualify wrong by saying it was wrong for me. Right. You know, because um, you have to experience what's right for you. But for me, coming from that engineering background and just never really liking the selling. Uh, world, and not to mention the um, you know the reputation of the used car salesman, what have you, and and not liking to be sold to, which I don't think any of us like to be sold to. Mm. I didn't feel comfortable doing that to others, which is what I felt I had to do. That's traditional selling techniques teach you to pitch your agenda, to use all those persuasive techniques, scarcity uh, tactics, and um, you know get a sale. And it works. Um, I do talk about that in my book. It works and it works really well. But if that's not you and how you want to operate and how you want to grow your business, then you're going to have a hard time and you're going to have to choose. And for a couple of years, I didn't think I had a choice. So I kind of filled that gap with traditional selling and marketing tactics. And, uh, you know, this works a little bit for products, but where human relationships and interactions are concerned, such as the world Dave and I live in, which is the world of professional coaching, it's really hard to um, avoid that human element. And um, the selling techniques didn't work for me. And I had mediocre success, but I wanted um, a lot more in my coaching experience. And I wanted to bring a lot more for my clients. And so for many reasons, I just had to move away from it, or at least put put it on pause and figure out what I'm going to do. I actually almost stopped coaching because of this, because I thought I resented the coaching, but it was the process by which I was trying to acquire clients. So that's something about, you know, making sure you're solving the right problem in life, but I'm not going to digress from the question. And, um, And so the wrong mindset for me, Dave, was that I thought I have to sell and be selling and pitching and driving my agenda in order to close clients and stay in business. And that's not true. Um, And so I ended up exploring and researching and experimenting with this other 
technique, strategy, which is all around serving powerfully, but within a framework that also serves your own business goals. And I also started charging appropriately because I was charging way too little for my services and understanding what that even means. And so I moved away from ever pitching my agenda. And uh, I started to really change the way I set up my coaching model. And um, and in, in its process, it became more exclusive because I was also turning away people that weren't right for me. And so I didn't have any desperation to get clients. And I got a lot of clarity as to why I am coaching, what I'm worth, what I what results I deliver, what those results are worth for a client, and who do I want to work with. And that gave me a lot of confidence. And at the same time, using this serving framework, having really powerful conversations, driving that conversation, leading that client or prospective client, I should say, arriving at the best decision for both of us at the end, all of that um, ended up helping me shape and form this serving mindset, which is the, um, you know, the body of the work of the book and the way I run my business and, and help others um, if they're open to it. Mm-hmm. I love what you're describing, Farnoosh. I definitely want to keep asking you more about like what it means to be of service because I think there's a lot to that term and a lot to that word. And yeah, I also want to. I'm going to. I'm going to flag this as a question I want to ask you in a moment about the difference between being of service and being subservient, or or like lowering yourself in a yeah. in a power dynamic or power vacuum when you're <laughs> working with others. I know you work with a lot of very high achieving people and organizations. This, just this last week, you uh, gave a presentation to the United States Air Force. So, you know, talk about power, power dynamics and, and yeah. structure of organizations. But before we do that, what I found fascinating about what you just described is, you know, when I asked you the initial question, you also said that you wanted to qualify what that quote unquote wrong mindset was and continue to explain that for you, and what you in turn are teaching and sharing in your book and as a coach seems to be that one of the missing links is really having to get clear through talking to yourself and knowing yourself, including what you want, why you want it, what works right for you and how you want to show up. Um, It sounds like early on in your relationship to coaching, you said you, you you kind of said that you were starting to transpose um, the discomfort and the frustration onto the act of coaching itself, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Which we see people do, myself included, all the time when it comes to um, kind of like almost inadvertently diverting a frustration or lack of knowledge onto art, creativity, writing, um, coaching, or speaking. I know for me personally, on on a personal level, I know for years, Farnoosh, I would tell people the story that I hate running. And Hmm. it was like, I hate running. I just, I hate it. I don't like it. What I was really feeling was that I wasn't good at it. And I had a relationship to it that I was like really bad at it. It frustrated me. It made me feel bad about myself. (laughs) And I described that as I hate it. And it sounds like you kind of had uh, your own little experience of that when it came to coaching. So how did you start to distinguish the difference between like blaming blaming it on coaching and realizing that there was like, oh, there's some inner work that I need to do here to get clarity about how I'm going about business, period, how I'm going about these things in general. 
Great question. So uh, a number of things happened. Number one, I started to look at it a little more deeply. Like, why am I getting so frustrated with the coaching? And it wasn't the coaching itself, I, I discovered a skill gap for myself because just to be fully transparent, I chose not to get a coaching certification. Mm-hmm. I was a certification junkie when I was in my corporate job and I had the hardest industry certifications. And, you know, they didn't quite give me what I had hoped in my career. So I wanted to design my business. And so Um, I thought, you know, I knew how to coach. That was actually a wake-up call in that there was a skill gap. I realized the art of coaching, which my future coach ended up calling it, that was a piece I needed to work on. So when you're not really good at something just yet, like you're running, you don't enjoy it as much. There is that period of struggle. So there was one thing I discovered. The second thing I discovered is I was really frustrated with my clients because I kept attracting the wrong clients. So I was blaming coaching as being the wrong thing for me, quote unquote, whereas the problem was the clients I was attracting because of my low prices, because of my desperation to close were so wrong for me. They weren't bad people. We were just not a good fit together. Okay. So I want to make that distinction. And so I resented the whole process. And once I got clear and started to separate the pieces, the problem became more clear. I needed to fill the skill gap for myself. And when I started to do that, learn how to become better at coaching, not by getting a certification, um, but rather by hiring my own coach who cost a lot more than actually double certifications, but she was worth every penny, but it was very specific to me. So she filled, helped me fill the art of coaching piece, but in that investment, scary, scary investment I made, I grew because I overcame my own biggest objection, which is I have to pay for coaching and invest in myself. Mm. And until I had walked my own talk, I wasn't really able to persuade anyone else to do it. So I, that, that in itself, the action itself was huge. But then I was so on top of the work I did with my coach. And she also taught me the business of coaching. Mm. So now I was learning the art of coaching, the business of coaching, investing in myself. And it started this identity shift from this amateur coach, which is what I was, I wasn't seeing it, but that's what I was, to now beginning to become a professional coach, which is what I wanted. And the first time I attracted the ideal client at a price that at the time was scary, but I had learned with my coach, this is what we need to do. And I was able to propose that and get a yes. And everything was a fit. The client was a fit. My skills were so much better from the work I had done. My confidence was better. And um, I was getting paid appropriately. I realized I love coaching. Oh my God, this is like what I'm made to do. And so I continued to nurture that because that's not a switch. You get better, then you get even better and you go deeper and deeper. There's no end the top 1% of coaches in the world are still learning. 
So that was the shift and um, it's been um, really powerful. So to sum it up, Dave, I would say um, separating the pieces of the assumption about the problem and just bringing all of them to inquiry. Is that really the problem or is that really the problem? And you can even do this on your own at self inquiry and you will um, you will get at least a little more clarity to what the real problem is because you have to solve the real problem and often we're solving the surface level problem you know in life or in business so over to you yes absolutely well uh, I what I love about that backstory Farnish is that it's very authentic to not only who I, I know you to be, because we've known each other for a number of years now, um, this this essence of leading by example of and, and just remembering that we all learn, we learn the value of what we want by doing it and walking in those shoes. And so I love that dynamic that you found the transition of going from, mm-hmm. as you said, like having that almost like an amateur mindset or understanding of the value to yeah. becoming a professional by investing in yourself and investing in it. And that's some common advice. You know, I, as a coach know that some common, uh, common well-known advice that the top coaches in the world give, whether they're life coaches or business coaches or executive coaches is as a coach, you need to invest in coaching. So you can, are continually challenging yourself to be on your own edge of learning and growth because ultimately you can only help somebody as far as you've gone yourself, but exactly also, also begins with what like investing in it yourself. And so Farnoosh, what, how would you describe the serving mindset? I, I mentioned a moment ago, sometimes uh, there can be some confusion around what the word and what it means to be of service. I think yeah. a lot of people put it on a pedestal, myself included, as like the ultimate expression of giving. But being of service, I don't think means just giving all of yourself, right? Because you say that when you're really being of value, your own goals in business and personally and professionally are also being served. So yeah, how would you describe like the serving mindset and what, what does service mean to you? Yeah, no, such good questions. And I, I would start by saying um, there is a lot of misunderstandings and and in even skepticism around serving you know when i give talks on this i i have the odd person in the room saying well serving is all well and good but we're running a business here as though they are separate mm-hmm. you know i'll tell you i got a text message from my client in melbourne australia just this during the pandemic saying um she and her husband run a podcasting services company and she said they closed their biggest contract ever for 53000 and it wasn't 40 it was 53 because her husband who's a hardcore salesperson didn't think they could get more. She, who was doing the serving mindset, which we'd worked on for a year, was charging appropriately relevant to the return on investment and the value she was offering and not budging, but also nurturing that relationship and the trust so that they really wanted to work with her and ended up doing so and paying her what she was asking. So I used that story and I, and I was so happy to get that because, you know, that was a lot of work on her part, a lot of mindset growth, but it shows you when you serve right, you win bigger than if you are pitching and selling. Mm. And so it's not just 
to give away everything and be compassionate and kind. That's a great reason. But if you are running a business, if you are, um, you have goals, you have targets, and um, you want to make your profit, then you need to do the serving in a framework. And even then, it is about having your prospects' highest interest at heart. This isn't about customer service. Those people are already your clients. This is about the prospective clients, the person who's met Dave and is thinking about working with him. He or she may never work with him. He doesn't know that. But the way you nurture that relationship and serve that person and you have decide you have to decide what that framework is for you. For instance, I don't do 30-minute teaser sessions because I don't think that helps me build the relationship I want to build. And because of the way I charge in my coaching, I can scale to invest one, sometimes two or three hours over the course of a period of time in those relationships. And from my experience, I know it pays off. I know it pays off. If nothing else, I make it very hard for the competitor because they are so stingy with their time. And and that's from the mindset. So for me, one way to serve is when I have filtered and know a prospect is likely a person I want to engage with and do business with and I can help them, then I invest. Like I'm having a second conversation um, with somebody else who I I. I, I know we're going to work well together if he chooses to move forward, but he may not. But I'm choosing to give him another hour because I know that, you know, that's going to nurture that relationship. And in the end, when you serve, you either win by closing right away, you win by closing later down the road, happens all the time. If you keep nurturing that relationship, as opposed to just wanting to close, meet your numbers, and then if it doesn't happen, you drop that person and move on. Or you never do business with them, but they send you referrals. They speak highly of you. They go out there and become your brand ambassador or tell other people about it. And so I find it's so much easier to serve and, and you have to be selective with who you bring into that conversation and your time and energy. Of course, you have to have filters. You can't do that with everyone. But once you understand what that is and you charge appropriately, not $100 an hour, but appropriately to where you can scale having those conversations and building those relationships, then you're operating on a completely different level as a business. And so that only happens when you put relationships, people, and trust first. And so, and we can break that down because I know that's, that sounds high level. I can give you specific examples. Um, it sounds really clear to me, Farnoosh, because what the words, you just like took the words out of my mouth. When you're talking about people having a conception that serving is like an ideal or a, or a value, but it is separate and aside from business. Right. That, what it says to me, how, how you mentioned like the word abundance comes to mind, an abundance mindset, but an appreciation for possibility, opportunity, and being guided by, like it, it's almost like your, your system, what the serving mindset sounds like to me. And tell me if I, I don't want to oversimplify it or put my own mm-hmm. definition on it, but it sounds like, when you are really keeping yourself true to a what you want, you know, what you want and need, not only out of like business as an idea, but 
working for yourself or feeling of value and wanting to advance yourself as a professional, uh, you know, whether you're a freelancer or a writer or a coach, uh, also keeping really true to understanding the needs and, and the problems that you're solving for your clients, which is like business 101, but it's an emotional journey. There's like emotional integrity and vulnerability. If you're going to be carrying yourself with trust and faith and holding space for possibility that this may work out in dollars, it may not, but ultimately you're doing it for the right reasons. And there's more potential than just this as a sale as fast as possible. That's what I'm hearing. Yes. Yes. I will add to that though. And that was it. That was a great summary. I will add that, you know, that the framework I teach in conversations, it, it doesn't always leave it up in the air. In fact, it, it never does, you know, like clarity and agreeing on next steps and speaking up when you know you can help someone, those are all elements of serving. So for instance, and and, this, and also when you can't help someone. So for instance, let's say you've had a great conversation and now you're moving towards the next phase. I always say, ask permission before you decide to offer anything. Like uh, Dave, we've had a great conversation. I feel highly confident I can help you with blank that we discussed. Mm-hmm. Would you like to look, discuss what it would look like for us to work together. I would never move to that phase, but I would also not let it happen organically. I'm leading that conversation. And if I feel I can help you, it's me serving you by asking that question. Now you may say, you know what, Farnoosh, I'm good. You helped me for today. We're all set. Great. Or you might say, I'd like to hear more. And then I would say, well, here is what it would look like for us to work together. That's the piece, Dave, that I feel there are those on the extreme spectrum side of, I want to serve, I want to help yoga teachers come to mind, right? My dear yoga teachers who you know, they can't possibly even put the price out there, much less say it. And then there is the other extreme. But for that extreme, you need to verbalize if you can help me and have the language and move me toward that phase of the conversation clearly where you tell me how you can help me and then the investment, not the cost or the fee, it's an investment. And that piece is what closes it and that's where you need to guide your prospective client to find out if they are going to work with you. So there is a lot of control and influence that you have in those conversations, but you have to have the skill to bring that to the conversation. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. It's it's not just a matter of having the emotional intention. There's also like real skill and lived in practice, which is what I hear you yes. about about how to approach it and how to do it so that it's your coach, I think you said, Farnish, described it as described coaching as an art, and it sounds also like not just "quote unquote" selling, but embodying and exhibiting the service mindset, the serving mindset, 
for business also is a skill that takes development. Yes. She had the art of coaching as one segment and then the business of coaching. Mm. So the art of coaching is when you're coaching someone and your skills and your style and, and that she called that an art because we all do it in our own unique ways. Right. And the business of coaching is running a profitable business of coaching, closing with clients, having a pipeline, all of that. So I like that separation. And I feel a lot of certification programs focus a lot on the art, which is important, Mm -hmm. but you need the other piece. And that's the part where some coaches struggle because it's a skill and we have to learn those skills. And I feel they have to also align to our values so we can do them well. Absolutely. Farnish, would you mind if we took a tangent? I love this conversation. I love learning about mm-hmm. your approach to, to business. This genuinely excites me. Um, mm-hmm. Can we t- right. take a turn to talk about your story a little bit? Because I'm really curious to ask about you as the, the writer of this story and the author of your book. Would that be okay? Of course. Yes. Ask away. Yeah. So I know, so as I mentioned, we've known each other for a number of years as, as kind of peers and colleagues in the online space, you uh, and I and, and your husband, Andy, we met um, at Blog World Expo, maybe in New York City, I think. Yes. I think. 2011, 2011. Long time yeah. ago. Mm-hmm. And so, so here we are today, but I've never asked you about your upbringing. I know that you grew up in Tehran and that you, I think you spent a few years in Turkey before you finally moved with your family yes. to the United States. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us what was your childhood like in Iran? Wow. You did take a turn. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's funny. I actually, um, when I've been giving this leadership during crisis uh, training that I've been giving, I share a war story where, you know, when I was five years old, a war broke out and there were bombings and because the crisis kind of brought back those memories that I thought were completely buried. And um, yeah, we lived through a revolution, which was terrible. And then a year later, a war. And um, I was in Iran until I was 11. And believe it or not, I mean, things were so hard, especially with the revolution and the war. But I had a good childhood. I had great parents, family. I mean, but so much family because all of us were there. And then we went to a vacation to Turkey for two weeks with my mom, seven months pregnant with my second brother and with two suitcases. And my parents decided there that, you know what, I think we're going to stay here and live here. Mm. And I'm like, what? (laughs) My dog is still waiting at home. My little lucky, I never forgave them for that. But the rest of it, I know it had to be done. And yeah, we left. We left with two suitcases. I never went back. My mom and my dad made several trips and we started completely over in Turkey for three years. Um, it was really hard. You know, I had to go to school. I had to learn Turkish, German, and English at the same time on top of my Farsi language. It was a really hard three years, especially for my parents. Again, as kids, you're so resilient and you don't really know. And then We came to America when I was, um, gosh, 15. Great time, right? Here I was, second culture shock, um, going to high school in America, which was 
hard. <laughs> so, so hard. But, um, you know, it worked out. And then uh, college and um, I married my American husband. I always wanted to ma- marry an American husband. I, I just, that was like a dream. <laughs> so I definitely scored there. <laughs> And um, I'm, glad, my, I'm glad on behalf of American perspective, yes. I'm glad that there's some appeal that we have. Oh, you have <laughs> lots of appeal. Are you kidding? I dreamt of moving to America someday. And we had family that had already moved. And many, many of our family moved since then. We're scattered all over. And this is absolutely home, home sweet home. And um, and that perspective never leaves you, you know, like the growing up with struggle and n- never having like the, the financial freedom until much, much later has made me so conservative fiscally. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that can be a good thing. And um, the, the hardships build you. And so even though I'm spoiled today, I think deep down, I do have a deep appreciation of my freedom, life here, all of our blessings. And um, it gives you a perspective. And and luckily, you know, we all moved together. I can't say that for a lot of Iranian families who move out of the country separately, like broken homes. You send your children first, and then maybe you can go, maybe not. My aunt is stuck there now during the pandemic with um, my cousins in Toronto. So um, I think that we were lucky. Yeah. yeah. Did Do you suppose that the experience that you had you mentioned being rather fiscally conservative these mm-hmm. days. Do you think that the experience of your upbringing had a big part in how you became such a high achieving young adult? I know yes. you studied electrical engineering and went yeah. to a great school and were, you know, ri- a rising star at a Fortune 100 company. So, you yeah. know, I'm going to say that you're lightly motivated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I had an unfair advantage and you can read about this being an immigrant there is something psychologically embedded in immigrating to america because if you've always lived here it's really hard to imagine it but you can't understand the first time i stepped into a supermarket and looked at the cheese selection and i thought this is ridiculous and and from there on just the abundance and and so but the immigrant mindset it, there is this um this drive for success and this hunger that's never satiated i can tell you i'm still pretty hungry you know and and i think that i call it an unfair advantage because you either have it or you don't and at the time that it is happening you can talk to any immigrants we resent it because we don't belong we don't fit in we don't feel comfortable we feel awkward we feel isolated and it's hard and your parents don't understand and there is culture shock and all of that. But then you grow up and you realize you, you have to be successful is the one thing, especially with the Iranian culture. So my dad chose my engineering degree and my master's. And at some point I said no to the PhD, but I'm, I'm grateful for that. The drive for success, again, you resent it while you're growing up, but it does you good if you know you're looking for a life of comfort and success but when i broke that path i was calling the shots myself and i'm really proud of that you know it took until 2011 to do it but then i thought you know something's missing and i want to really design the rest of my life and not just be 
I don't know, just just keep going the way I could in a comfortable way, um, you know, with the corporate jobs. And, and I don't think that's ungrateful. I think that's very brave. And, and I'm glad we did. And my husband and I have had great experiences working together and traveling the world and not being beholden to bosses and initiatives that don't fulfill us. So what a beautiful story too, on top of it, that, you know, as an immigrant Farnoosh, like, I think, I don't know if it was yesterday or today that, like we said, you just finished a training with military command of the United States, you know, military leadership and and are in a role of consulting, supporting leadership in a period of crisis. It's like just such a, it's a, it's a, it's a small example because this happens a lot more than maybe a lot of people tend to realize, but you know, that melt, the melting pot dream um, yes. that we all believe in, in, in America is like still very much alive and thriving. Yes. It's, it's such, it's such a great, like heartwarming story to hear you just tell it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, no country is without problems and, 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 and we don't need to talk about politics and, and, you know, there is a still a lot of people in the world. If you surveyed them, especially anonymously, they would tell you their number one dream is to live in this country, period. Yeah. And so it's something to remember. And, um, and I think, yeah, you know, being an immigrant, I mean, it's not that my husband hasn't been grateful, but you asked about that drive for success. And I think it's really common with um, uh, special cultures and definitely being an immigrant, especially if you immigrate anytime during your childhood or teenage years. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. So Farnish, we're, we're recording this interview at the end of May in 2020. Obviously, you're doing leadership in crisis trainings because of the, the ongoing uh, pandemic situation. Um, but I'm curious, what do you see as being next for you? I know that you had to sideline a lot of plans for speaking and sharing your book. Um, how are you navigating this period of, of crisis in the world? And what are you suspecting is next for you, um, whether personally or professionally? Yeah, no, such a good question. Um, I mean, yes, we put the speaking career on hold, of course, because, you know, the, the reality of our situation. And that may or may not come back depending on how things go. I trust we will be back to having events in 2021 or later that year. Um, and um, uh, it's it's nice because I, I see that this has created, like once I made the pivot and the shift, I accepted, you know, what's happening and the pivot and the shift. Um, it seems like we're doing a lot of online training, corporate training, and I've wanted to do that for some time. So perhaps this will open a lot more doors with the training I put together, um, the current one, my leadership in crisis, I actually made a very conscious decision, Dave, to do it on a pro bono basis for the summer, the spring and summer. And um, um, I feel like that's an investment I'm making and in serving and building those relationships. And I trust that will pay off. So more training and building the training that I have wanted to build behind the the book, The Serving Mindset. So I'd like to do that. Um, And I have a secret dream of writing fiction someday. (laughs) Oh, wow. I know, I know. It's it's a big dream, but um, I'm not really taking many steps towards it. And I really don't know what lays next, you know? I mean, I'm going day by day, focusing on the present um, for many reasons because of so much uncertainty, you know? I think it's a little bit... um, 
presumptuous, at least for me, to plan too much ahead, mm-hmm. you know, because I might have to, I don't know, put them on hold or what have you, but um, showing up every day, working on what I can, serving whom I can, and um, just, um, you know, making sure I'm aligned to what I'm still enjoying. So I love the interactions, whether it's multiple group coaching, individual coaching, training, and the speaking, all of that I love to do. Uh, so um, not sure actually about the fiction. You have to do a lot of isolated time in a little cabin. and uh, <laughs> But um, those are the plans so far. Um, and I, I don't know. I'm open to possibilities, you know. I feel like it's important when you are an entrepreneur to leave a little bit of room for flexibility because you just can't imagine the opportunities you could attract. So you want to leave a little room in your life to be able to respond to them if you choose to do so. Absolutely. I mean, to leave room for possibility means you have to give yourself some blank spaces so that things can come in. Well, Farnoosh, I'm very excited for whatever novel you, I'm going to say that you end up doing it because you're too too much of a high achiever. You'll figure out a way to keep it social and keep it light. And don't it will be under a pen name. It will be yeah, under a yeah. secret pen name. Oh, I can't wait. I can't <laughs> wait to hear all about it. Well, Farnoosh, thank you so much for your time today. It was you such bet. a pleasure to talk to you about The Serving Mindset. Um, thank you for reading from your book for us and for telling us about your your story and your your professional approach. It was a pleasure. Oh, Dave, thank you. It's been great to be friends and to watch each other's journeys. And uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm grateful. I'm Dave Rosillo, and this is Written Spoken. Bye for now.